I'm Evacheska DeAngelis, and I am here to welcome you to our internet radio broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Mind, Body, Health, and Politics brings you wide-ranging, uncensored conversations containing up-to-date information with prominent, nationally acclaimed authorities, scientists, and best-selling authors. We feature a wide variety of topics ranging from psychedelic science, expanding consciousness, mental and physical health, human sexuality, the environment, social justice, and much more. This program has been hosted by my father, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, for 20 years, and we continue to broadcast because you listen. So please give us your support by subscribing free of charge at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and joining our growing community. And now, here's my dad and today's guest. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being, and encourage community. And I say encourage community strongly because I believe living in community is the healthiest way to live. I believe that when people live in small enough group where we know one another by name or at least by face, we're a cooperative species. We like to help one another. We like to collaborate on projects. We love to do things together. Whether it's watching something or playing something or doing something, whether it's a sewing circle or a polka circle or a sitting around and eating circle, we love to sit around and eat together. Tribal, that's what we are. We're a tribal-friendly, cooperative species. And you might listen and say, what is he talking about? The history of the world is a history of war, not cooperation. Well, yes, that's because there are a very small percentage of us who are predators, who still believe in king of the hill. These are the ones when we came out of the caves ruled with a club, then they became tribal chieftains. Eventually they called themselves king. After that, they made a big deal with the church. So they ruled by divine right. In other words, if you went against the king, you were not only going against the king, you were going against God. Nobody wanted to be that big a sinner, so they let the king subject them. And people who lived under kings were called subjects. We changed that for the first time in thousands of years during our American Revolution. We changed from being subjects to being citizens. First time in thousands of years. The Greeks experimented with democracy. So did the Romans until the predator Julius Caesar came along. He ended the republic, and it became an empire. And from then on, for hundreds of years, dictators ruled in Rome. This went on throughout all of history until our revolution. There are so many examples of dictators. Genghis Khan, Napoleon Bonaparte, Hitler, Mussolini, Putin. Trump would love to be a dictator. Bolsonaro. Those are the kind of people that we must stay aware of because democracy and republic is a fragile experiment. I grew up believing I'm living in a democracy. I'll have it forever. It's not the case. We have to work to keep it together, and you must vote to keep it together. To keep together our democracy, one person, one vote, our republic, everybody equal before the law, no matter how much money or anything else you have. We're all equal before the law, equal people. 
We must stay awake and vote, folks. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today, I'm honored to have as a guest here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, a man named John Ivey. John has had a wide career and a broad career and a deep career doing many things, some of which he'll tell us about. But the primary reason he's here today has to do with the fact that he, like myself, got a diagnosis of metastatic cancer. And he has been using psychedelics in part to deal with this diagnosis. If I get it correct, we'll find out from John. John, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thanks, Richard. John, you heard me say that, uh, you know, we both got these uh, diagnoses of uh, metastatic cancer. Yeah, I heard you say that. I didn't know that until you said it. But I imagine it was going to surprise you. Yes, I had a um, I had a growth on the side of my face. And I went to my doctor and he used this uh, liquid nitrogen to take care of it. He thought it was a basal or squamous cell carcinoma, which is relatively harmless. And he kept spraying it and it kept coming back. And at the end of the year, I said, you know, I think you better mail this in and do a, you know, do a biopsy and mail it in. And the next week he handed me this piece of paper and it said metastatic melanoma nodulokine. I went home, looked it up on the Google with my wife, and it said can kill in six weeks. So that was the beginning of my story. What's the beginning of your story? Oh, it starts uh, in August of 2021. I was operating a water tender on a fire uh, up in Hayford, California. That's uh, part of what I do. And I rolled a water tender. You see them on construction sites, a big tank truck. Um, on a on a body, and I did that to haul water to fire engines on forest fire. And I was really tired. It was just at daylight, and I came around the corner going too fast, and I rolled the truck, went over the hill, rolled the truck 175 yards down a bank. Whoa! I, crawl. I crawled out of it and walked back up the hill, and they walked they, back up the hill. I walked back up the hill. Oh. They, the the safety officer said you're going to the hospital. I said I'm fine. So you're going to the hospital. So I went to the hospital in the ambulance and they did the CAT scan and they came back and they said, well, you don't have any broken bones. Your internal organs look great, but you got cancer, man. You better figure it out. So I finished the fire season. Well, wait, wait one minute before you go on to the fire station. I can tell you what I did when I did that. What did you do when you're standing there and you heard them say that? What, what, what? I, I went back to the it? fire. You went back, went back to, to the work. Fire. Okay. I went back to work. That's so, basically um, what I did too, John. I went back to work. Yeah. So then at the end of the fire season, October 31st, we ended the season. I went to the ER in San Francisco VA Medical Center. Yes. I walked in and said, hey, they told me I got cancer. Let's check it out. So they looked at the, the CAT scan. They got it from Reading and they they got all excited. Oh, yeah. Advanced, aggressive kind of stuff. Then they did the PET scan and they did the biopsy, which was excruciating. And so then they sent me to oncology. And I went in there, met the oncologist, and uh, he said the same thing, aggressive, uh, advanced. Uh, we won't cure the cancer, but we can fight it, he said. And I said, well, what if I just choose to, to take a more relaxed approach? And he said, you'll be dead in a year. You'll be a very painful death. You better do what I say. So, wow. yeah, a very aggressive man, uh, assertive. Uh, talk about uh, the dictatorial mindset and someone who's obsessed with their own power and their own capacity to rule here. here medical doctor who was a who's a dictator in his own little realm and one yes. wing of the VA hospital. And, huh? 
in California. Yeah. And so he scared me, he scared my family. My, my son was like, you're a belligerent old man. You got to do what the doctor says. So short form, I let him put some chemicals in my body that were going to destroy my endocrine system so that I would not have any testosterone, testosterone in my body, which fuels the cancer. I let him do that. And then I felt the way it was happening to me. I did some homework on what was in me. And I said, no, I'm not doing that anymore. So that the, the official diagnosis came in November of 2022. And they said, pretty much it's too late to do anything about it, but we'll use you for a guinea pig anyway and see what these chemicals will do if we put them in your body. So I have a Buddhist background. Uh, I spent 11 years. And so the, the story at this point. You spent is, 11 years what? Finish that one for me, please. I spent 11 years at uh, Chagdagumpa Riggs and Ling in Trinity County yes. as a Zochin student of Lama wow. Dreamy. Wow. And uh, I spent winters during that. I spent five winters uh, alone in the Trinity Alps wilderness in deep snow, uh, trying to figure out what it would, how much a man could do without to stay alive on the planet. Mm -hmm. I packed food in. The last summer I went up into the Trinity Alps wilderness, I used uh, a Wrangler, three pack animals, and we packed in 450 pounds of supplies. And I stayed pretty much all winter until June in the mountains playing Buddhist tournament. It was a fun how game was to that play. For your, how was that for your inner self? Was it a wonderful experience? I, I love the solitude. Yeah, you, you you spoke earlier about us being tribal creatures, and I believe we are. But I had the opportunity to be up there in those mountains alone. Yes, nobody coming to look for me. The snow mm -hmm. was piling up. The snow was was well over ten feet deep in certain places up there. And were you, were you in were you in a shelter? I had a couple of shelters that I built under rock overhangs with brush and plenty of fire. I I knew I know how to live outside, so I was able to stay relatively comfortable for for that period of time um, through the winter. But here, here's where I'm going is I was able to look down the canyon, uh, Canyon Creek, it's called, towards uh, the valley where that Buddhist retreat center is and know that there was a tribe down there, my community, my sangha, my tribe, and that we were engaged in pursuing life as a spiritual adventure. Mm -hmm. And I was holding a part of that community by being alone in the mountain and working on a certain meditative approach to existing mm -hmm. in this physical body which I now get to continue that because um, I, a year in November. So by I the way, excuse me, John, all this training, 11 years of Buddhism training and spending these times out in, in the winter in solitude and, and building your own shelter and so on, this was all training and all happened prior to you getting the diagnosis of terminal cancer, correct? Exactly. exactly. Thank you. Yeah, yeah okay. prior to. So, okay, so we have some background. Let's come back again to the diagnosis. Your family's now scared. You decided you'll take these things that you, you didn't want to take. And then what happens? Well, basically, the chemicals that, that he wanted to put in me were, were the chemicals they give sex offenders in Europe. They wanted to castrate me chemically. And so that his theory is that the testosterone carries the cancer to the Mets and to the bones and causes it to develop quicker. I have established in California a relationship with a medical doctor who's written a prescription that I can take at any time in my life. And I, I have that option established. I like that. I think, today, I think that's great. Yeah. yeah. So today I'm talking about how I want to die. I don't want to die in bed. I don't want to die as a medical specimen with any doctors or nurses looking at me through the lens of their training as medical professionals. I, I love nurses. I admire the work they do. And, and I hope they're all out there enjoying the, the service of taking care of people who need to be taken care of. I'm dying. I don't need to be taken care of medically. Well, 
I need to embrace the next realm. Time out. How do you know you're dying? What's changed about your daily life? Well, today I'm constipated and I can't urinate and I barely was able to run the catheter up through my urethra to empty my bladder. But but the, um, all those things don't necessarily mean you're dying. That happened to a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago. He had to wear a catheter up his penis for a couple of weeks. It was a real bummer. Yeah, well, okay. So I don't, I'm not going to argue with you. Thank you, because um, I'm questioning whether you and I and others in our similar condition really ought to be walking around thinking that we're dying while we're living because we're still here. And it's sort of a mind warp for me to walk around thinking I'm dying rather than thinking I'm living while I'm living because it, it could, you know, spoil my day. It can harsh my mellow. Well, I'm sorry for you that you have to have that perspective, but I'm going to tell you something. And this is a fact. The day your mother gave you birth and you came out of the womb and started breathing yes. air is the day you started dying. Well, well, that's true for all of us, John. I'm not denying that, but I'm saying, how does it benefit us to walk around thinking about it since it's something that's going to happen in the future? It's not happening right now. You and I are both here. I don't believe that. Oh. I'm okay if you believe that. Right. I don't. Okay. What do you believe? I love hearing the conversation. I believe the future is now. I believe the future is now. I believe the process unfolding is unfolding now. And if you take enough mushrooms, uh, we can have a conversation about that because we're talking about psychedelics and we're talking about using plant medicines as well as other forms of meditation to move the consciousness into a realm that recognizes the three times past, the present, and the future all exist now. There is no future. There is now. There is now. And I am engaging a process of looking down the road to meet the opening that happens for me when I get rid of this meat body, which is decomposing. Now, you might like to say you're alive. I used to be really alive. I used to climb trees and cut the tops out. I used to, I used to swing around in trees on ropes. I used to climb hillsides with a chainsaw on my shoulder. I used to be a very vigorous and vital young man. I've been watching my body lose capacity for decades now. And at some point, I'm going to have to lay down and say, no, I will not take Oxycontin. I don't care how much pain is coming. I'm not going to die unconsciously. So I am looking at this as a sadhana, as a spiritual practice, and I am approaching that moment when I liberate from this physical body and the movement at that point. And the physical body stops and the consciousness moves forward is the moment that I am working to prepare for. Now, you referenced that during this period, you're using psychedelics. And please tell us about your use, what you're using, and some of the benefits you're getting. Even tell us the dosage. I don't know doses. My initial, I like I said, I gave up. I lived through the 60s and I gave up the whole thing at the end of the 70s, 79, 78. I moved into yoga ashrams and started a different path with no chemical catalyst. I call it a catalyst. When I got the diagnosis, my son realized we had conversations and he got past his fear and he accepted the fact that his father was going to be dead at some point. He then offered me a session with a fellow who, who came out of California Institute of Interpol yes. Studies and their program down there and who, who does guided trips. Uh -huh. And I did a mushroom journey with that man. And then I did another So Well, before you go to the next people. one, please tell us a bit about the first one. Okay. I want to tell you a thing that arises me every time. I was in this man's home in a, in a room in his home that he had set up to guide the ceremony. And so... Like I said, it has been years, so I took the, uh, the, the concoction that he had brewed from mushrooms, and he's very skillful at that, 
and uh, came on very fast. And uh, I talked a lot, too much maybe. He kept encouraging me to put the eye shades and the earphones and go internal. I finally did. And it's just, this is significant for me because my psychedelic journeys right now, and I have had uh, one, two, uh, and then maybe four with ayahuasca and one more with mushrooms. So like six times in this recent phase, I will probably do more. I was at my friend's home and I approached the doorway. I was in a, a headspace, a psychic space, colors, music, sounds, flowing energy in my body, and a portal opened for me. Kind of if you visualize the, uh, the lens on the camera, how it opens up and closes down, the portal opened. And I was invited by some force of consciousness. I can't say who or what, but it was something speaking to me, come through the portal. We have something wonderful for you on this side. And so I said, I want to do that. And then it hit me that you have to make an agreement to go through the portal. You have to be willing to not come back from where you go. You have to have, that's the key that opens the portal that you go through. You have to be willing to enter that whatever realm mm -hmm. that is and not mm -hmm. come back. And I thought to myself, well, if I do that, I don't come back and I die now in my friend's house. He's going to have to call the coroner. And that's going to be a really a big problem for him to have a dead guy in the bedroom. So, yeah, so I had to, I, I said, I can't do that. And so the, the opening closed oh. and I was not able to go through that. I uh, was in an ayahuasca ceremony with a number of people, 40 people. And uh, it was in Oregon where it's legal. And it was a three-day ceremony. We, we used ayahuasca three times each day. And I was in the afternoon of the second day, deeply involved. And I decided I had called 911 and that the, the medical people in the ambulance were going to show up on the front porch at any moment. Another opportunity for me to stop and go through the portal to see what's on the other side. My last mushroom journey, I hit the same piece. I hit the opportunity to leave my body I was in a hot tub this day, a beautiful sunny day. I was in a hot tub alone and I became frightened, not for going through, through the portal. I think I'm excited to move into the next realms. I think it's going to be a wonderful deal. I'm not afraid of the death itself, but I became afraid that I would be dead in the hot tub and my friends would come home to their house and find me floating and then they would have to deal with it. So this is me approaching death. I'm, I feel like I'm approaching death. I believe I'm approaching death. And I'm trying to do it consciously and creatively and in a way that leaves the least amount of mess for other people to clean up. Interesting story. Three ayahuascas in one weekend. I've taken ayahuasca three times also, but it was three separate occasions. I've taken LSD well over 100 times, and I've taken psychedelic mushrooms uh, over 100 times, at least in my lifetime. Of course, I'm 84, so I've had... Uh, 60, 55 years to practice. I started, I tried uh, psychedelics for the first time in 1965. And when, when I've had that portal open up, the, I had read about what that meant. And so I went through and I said, I'm going to just allow myself to die. And so far, I've done that many times. So far, I, I'm still here. Uh, one time I'm going to go through and I won't be here. I recognize that's how it is. Um, it's, as you probably know, it's described by the Buddhists. It's been described by Larry and Alpert as ego death. That that's what we're really going through. It's not a really material death, but an ego death on psychedelics. Whereas in the rest of life, we're going to go through a real death, as we both know, and everybody knows, of course. I think you're a courageous guy that you did this. 
and and uh, during this period of dealing with this diagnosis. And you know, with my situation, I I said to my surgeon, you know, this thing I have is supposed to kill in six weeks, and I've had it for a year. I know how come I'm not here. And he said, well, the best I can tell is your immune system is blocking it. It's building a wall around it and blocking it. How do they explain to you how you're still here, John? Well, I fired the oncologist, so he doesn't want to talk to me I anymore. fired one of my... <laughs> we both did that. So what else did you tell me? <laughs> he, he said, uh, well, the, the cancer is going to progress, and it just, uh, it's too bad. Uh, we fight cancer here at this office, and if you don't want to fight cancer with us, uh, we have no reason to talk. <clears throat> so that's how he said it. And as I wrote it, you know, I think you spoke about war, you spoke about aggression early in your political uh, speech yes. here. And I think that uh, there's a mindset, in, particularly in the Veterans Administration, about war. And we have a doctor who wants to see cancer as an enemy, and he wants to fight it, and he's already admitted right away, we can't defeat it, but we can fight yeah. with it. And I thought, man, I don't want to play that game uh -huh. with you. You want to go duke it up and fight with uh -huh. this monster that can never be uh -huh. defeated? You can do that. Don Quixote can ride his horse and chase windmills. I'm going to go have a spiritual experience in the last phase of yes. my life. That's how I'm taking it. And, and we talk, you talk about, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Chris, Christopher Bates. Yes, of course. I've interviewed him on this program, John. Right, right. So when I read his book, after I did that first mushroom session, someone gave me that book and I went, oh, oh, this man's talking about what I experienced in 1969 and no one's ever been able to talk about it. So if you take a look at that and you go through your personal healing, which psychedelics can facilitate, you can deal with how your daddy was, how your mama was, what traumas you've had in this life. But you can also transcend the, tra transcend the personal space, transpersonal, and start to see realms where we have, we share karma. All of us. It's it's a it's a, a realm of energy and and a non physical realm. It pre exists or exists foundational to ma material reality. And it's in those realms where certain winds are blowing, certain frequencies are vibrating. And if you allow yourself to merge into those realms, you can see the what the Buddha taught, for example, about suffering. That the suffering of humanity is the suffering of each of us. We are all joined in certain places. Also, we're joined past the suffering and in realms of bliss. And happiness, but you're not going to be able to move into the realms of bliss and happiness until you are willing to accept total suffering of all sentient beings as your own. Yes, that's the that's and the existential reality that we're all connected and we all feel everything everybody's feeling, don't we? All the, all the right. Time. And so you know, we live a life where we're encouraged to pe people don't know that, so they want to gain, they want to gain, they want to gain. We have we have a culture that's become so insane that many people are living in poverty, while a few handful of people have enough money to build enormous yachts and and empires. and drive around and, and, and drive around in platinum Mercedes Benz while other people are starving. Yes, exactly, yes. exactly. So, John, I want to come back to something here. I want I want okay. to hear some more about your perspective on how you benefited by taking the psychedelics again. How did it, how did it benefit your, your spirit, yourself, your being? Well, I call the psychedelics a, a spiritual catalyst. They were all going through a spiritual process, whether we know it or not. And we're dealing with, uh, I just wrote about karma. Karma is the energetic resonance existing in these non-material planes that we're all connected through. And so it opens the capacity to move into those realms. And based on what I'm saying to you right now is I, I began a process with those psychedelics, 
but I did not give myself the room to surrender yes. to moving yes. through. I did not give myself that. So I need to think, well, maybe I just need to meditate in my Buddhist practice and not use these psychedelics. If I do the value of the power of those psychedelics, I need to really make sure I'm in the right space so that I can yes. let my body go. May I offer uh, 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 an opinion? Please. I think if you went back to that guide that you liked so much, that original guide, I think he could guide you through acceptance and going through the portal so that you would you can take a good look and have more acceptance. Because it could be, I mean, you're a, a fearless guy and you've done some amazing physical things, but it could possibly be that you're dealing, like so many of us are, with some lurking fear of death. Do you sense you have a little fear of death left? Or are you... You're no, totally cool. Are I you think, cool with it? I have fear. I have fear. It was fear that held yeah. me back. Let's uh -huh. say that. But I don't think it was fear of ah. death. I had fear of what's happening here in the material Like what? Realm. Like getting sick, being upset, feeling... Like being dead in, in the guy's house. Oh, the inconvenience because you're such a nice person. You're thinking of him having to deal with your body. I can dig that. I'm like that too because yeah, yes. I'm 6'5". I think, oh my God, somebody's going to have to pick up a 210-pound corpse. Right. So I've talked to that man yeah. about it. Um, I've talked to others. I have, I have a strong support system from the Buddhist community. Yeah. We, we dispersed at a certain point, but um, we've talked about recreating the circumstances yeah. um, in, a, in a way that it'd be okay if, if I didn't come yeah. back. But it, remember, most likely, I mean, I can't be sure of anything, but most likely we are dealing with what the, with the classic ego death and, and it's uh, uh, your own death or something else. But it's always possible that you die right there. I've heard of a few cases of people dying under the influence of psychedelics. So here's another story for you. My last ayahuasca session was a one, a one evening session starting late in the afternoon and going to midnight or so. And it was in a, an organized uh, situation, a, a, a church uh, that uses Santo Daime Church. You know, oh. and, and I had a... a uh, what do they call it, a caretaker, a guardian. And I wanted to be left alone. I, this one, I wanted to be left alone. I wanted to meet the medicine and let it take me. But I went to purging. So I went out of the room and, and had my face in the <laughs> toilet. And the, and the guy followed me and he wouldn't leave me alone. And he, because it was his job to yeah. take care of me and make sure I'm right. okay. And so I went back into the room and I went in the corner and I, I went down in a position that's good for me. And I put my knees on the floor. I put my head, forehead on the floor. And I wanted to be left alone. I wanted the medicine to say what it had to say. I wasn't having exactly. fun. But, but the medicine, I don't need for the medicine to be fun. I wanted to show here, me Here, here. I'm with you 100%. And so the guy wouldn't leave me alone. He kept coming uh, over there. You need to lay down. Uh, and I'm like, I, I yelled at him. And, you know, the other people over there singing their hymns and whatnot. So I went through about three quarters of the ayahuasca session in that way. Wow, with him, bother with him like, bothering you for three quarters of the session? Well, him coming over and checking oh. on me. He went back, but he wasn't constantly there, but yeah. he was constantly yeah. there because I knew he was yeah. coming back. So I, I, at the end of the session, well, three quarters of the way, I put myself up. I sat in lotus pose, which is a good meditation pose for me. And I was watching the people singing their hymns in Portuguese, just like, do I really want to take this path? Do I want to learn to sing Portuguese <laughs> hymns uh, as, a, as a way of doing my spiritual work? I'm not sure yet, but I looked across. Here's the key. I looked across the table. And on the wall was a picture of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and a big picture with her heart open. She's holding her heart in her hand, offering her heart. And I, 
I looked across and I just started looking at that picture and all of a sudden I went, oh, you're watching me. And she started moving around uh -huh. and she started winking at me and she said, yeah, I'm, I've been watching you all along. She said, I always watch. I don't have to come and go like you do. I'm always in the spiritual realm and I'm always watching. And what are you going to do with that? And then it was over. So I was left with that, with the ayahuasca. It's a different kind of uh, spirit guide to mushrooms. Very for sure. different. I, John, I did those three experiences. They were very big experiences. I don't dig puking. And, and, and I think the whole... I think the whole thing about puking is a bunch of baloney. They say, you know, you're puking up bad vibes. You're puking up, you know, evil spirits. It's baloney. Ayahuasca is an emetic. It makes the natives puke. It makes us puke. It's not my kind of thing. I'm glad enough people get enough out of it. I'm happy they do without the people don't mind the puking. But I don't like this selling the public on the on this, that the puking is like an important psychological purge. You know, if you drink something that makes it, it's toxic, you puke, and that's about it. And, and there is a toxic element in ayahuasca. And we don't really have that with LSD and with psilocybin. So that's why I prefer the others. I, I, I haven't seen LSD since 1972. Maybe. My L LSD is probably as the most potential for healing, for creativity, uh, and I think maybe for mankind. But it has all the baggage from the 60s applied to it. And so it's going to be, you and I won't be around by the time it's made legal. How old are you, John? I'll be 73 in oh, June. Oh, I can, I can vaguely remember being 73. It's in the very distant, <laughs> in the very distant past. I turned 84 a couple of weeks ago. Well, you're sure doing great, huh? <laughs> well, I feel pretty good, yeah. So what, what's, what's your cancer diagnosis look like at 84? Oh, Is it gone? Yeah, uh, I'm going to tell you about that, but I want to tell you another story about me and cancer. Please. So one time yeah. I go to this oncologist, you know, the, the kind of guy you fired and I eventually didn't work with, you know, and, and he says, uh, you know, he puts his finger, does what's called a, a direct rectal examination, digital rectal examination, DRE, puts his finger up, you know, and he feels a bump on my prostate. So next thing I know, I got a diagnosis of cancer of the prostate. So I was taking testosterone uh, and uh, at the time to, to raise my testosterone because all of our testosterones as males decreases with age. And I've got a beautiful young wife and I wanted to have a nice ex uh, you know, sexual uh, life, which we fortunately did. And uh, so I took testosterone. And he says to me, you got to stop taking that testosterone. In fact, we got to give you something that'll push down your testosterone, a drug called Luprin. I don't know if they try to do Luprin on you. Yeah. So I go look yeah, it up. That's this nasty yeah. stuff. So I go look it up and I find out some of the doctors around the country are cutting men's testicles off, literally, in order to suppress their testosterone because they think it's going to increase their prostate cancer. So I do a bunch of more research and I find out that this guy uh, uh, named Hull, I think it was, won a, a Nobel Prize for making the connection between testosterone and prostate cancer. And that the testosterone, he said, testosterone is like throwing gasoline on a fire. So the, I find this professor at Harvard named uh, Morgenthaler, Abraham Morgenthaler, he duplicates, replicates the, the Nobel Prize winner's uh, research and finds out it's baloney, total baloney. Morgenthaler comes out and he says, Testosterone isn't gasoline on a fire. Testosterone is like giving water to a thirsty man. 
When he's had enough water, he'll stop drinking. When the prostate has had enough testosterone, it'll stop taking it in, and you're doing the wrong thing. So I decided to bet What's on Morgenthaler, and I kept taking the testosterone. Then you kept I kept it. taking it. I took, a, I took it. I kept my, my numbers way high, real nice and high, and loved it. Loved how it, the effect it had on my libido. On my, Your PSA numbers were high. My PSA numbers were high. However, when they scared me with the PSA number saying, oh, it's so high, it's seven and a half, and the top of normal is four, I went and did some deep research and found out, yeah, the top is four if you average all men of all ages. But if you average men by each decade, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 7.5 for a guy my age in the 70s is not abnormal. It's normal because PSA goes up with age. So I said, hey, what are you doing? You're telling me I have abnormal. Well, you send me for a, for, for a, a biopsy where they punch the holes through and it's terribly painful. So anyway. Oh, that. No, that. I know. But I avoided that, John, because I did research and I found out that there's a better way than a biopsy to check for cancer of the prostate, and it's called a three-Tesla MRI. And I was lucky that they had one at the University of California Medical School in San Francisco. I lived three hours away. I went down. They pushed the thing up my rectum. They did an MRI on my prostate. And the guy says to me, no cancer. I said, what about the bump on my prostate? He says, it's a benign cyst go home. That was the end of it. I, I could have been one of those suppressing my testosterone. I could have been suppressing my sex drive. You would have taken enough meds to make you sick. And they would have said, oh, look, he's sick from cancer. Exactly. With, I was I got really sick when they gave me those drugs. And I got sicker from the treatment than I ever got from the Did disease. you take that Luprin that suppresses testosterone? I, yeah. I put it in the fatty tissue of my oh. belly where it lived for six months, and I couldn't get rid of it. I had to live with that stuff in me for six oh, months. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I... I uh, getting yeah. back, to the, but, getting you know, back to the metastatic cancer, the question you asked me about it myself. So the cancer was up here in my temple, and I, from what they taught me, the way it works is the cancer, first thing it does is it goes to the nearest lymph gland, and then the lymph gland acts like a like a like a like an embassy and it sends out ambassadors which we call metastasis you know all over the body so they cut me open from here down to here guy did a great job with no scars or anything not that i would have minded a scar i, I told him to put a german dueling scar on my face remember those <laughs> <laughs> so cut me open here and the guy calls me on the phone he says Hang on. he says there's no cancer in your lymph it looks like you're home free i said how sure are you he says, 90 to 95%. I said, how do we get the other 10%? He says, we do a special CAT scan, a PET scan, a special PET scan. I'm sure you've had them. It's in a cement box in a special building, and you got to go in, and they roll you into this machine. They, they put radioactive stuff in your right. blood. So I went through that, yeah. calls me on the phone, and he says, no, you're clear. Your whole system is clear of cancer. So that's when I asked the question, how come I'm not dead? Why did this happen? And he said, your immune system built like a, like a moat, like a firewall around the cancer and, and, and stopped at it, and we cut the whole thing out. So right now, I'm, 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 I'm cancerish free, but every three months, I go and get my whole body photographed, and I get these examinations and so on. I'll have to do that the rest of my life, because this time, I don't want to wait a year. If they catch it, I want to try to cut it out you know, within 10 minutes. 
Yeah. Okay. Understood. My stuff's in my yeah, bones. Yeah, I saw that. You got it, it in the bones already. But again, they can't explain to you why you're still alive when they said you were dying. But you can, based on your 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 spirit and your and your connection to spirit. Correct. Yeah. I uh, I understand. I hate to throw buzzwords around, but karma is the best word. Um, then I have, you know, there's a there's a, some sort of purpose, purpose, purposeful consciousness that's guiding this journey that I'm taking mm-hmm. here in this phase of my yes. life. And I'm meeting that purposeful consciousness with my own intent and my own will to be of service to the to those realms where we all are connected through suffering or through joy. And and how can I meet that? And so, you know, I, I have a sense that there's a, I wrote it, there's a, there's a direct connection, although I can't point at it or, or articulate it, between the cancer that has arisen in my bones and the fracking operations I participated in out in Wyoming, fracking the earth, reaching down deep into the earth and fracking her bones. There, there's, there's a place where what we're doing on the planet is the source of the disease and the pain and the suffering. And the whole planet is is suffering in that way right now. And in a lot of ways, we are the, the disease of the biosphere. And so my commitment to healing is my commitment to healing that biosphere. And wherever I got to go through, that's what I got to go through to meet that healing. And, you know, I, I have significant pain yesterday. I was in the ER last night for pain management. And I'm in dialogue today about pain management. And they want to put Oxycontin in me. And I'm saying, I'm not taking narcotics. I'm not taking narcotics. I don't want to die in the sunlight, lucid. I don't want to be just to be comfortable. I, I, I don't want to just be comfortable. I'll take the poison and die before I go down that road. I'm so with you. you so, the things you just said, John, I just want to say they're so beautiful and so touching to listen to. You know, I can feel it in my entire being, uh, the, the, the beautiful uh, words and sentiments that you're sharing. I also share with you that I won't take Oxycontin. I'm a chronic pain person, too. I've got degenerative disc disease and compressed disc, but I'm not going to take that stuff and take down my whole system. Not, no way. You walk around like a zombie and talk about constipation. That stuff really causes constipation. Yeah, I know. I went in there last night and said, I'm constipated. And they said, okay, well, let's take some Oxycontin. And I'm going, did you hear me or not? Oxycontin causes it, constipation. I, so I know. God. That's what I'm I saying. Use Metamu- By the way, but, I use a lot of Metamucil. Do you ever use that? No, I got some, somebody just delivered when we started talking, uh, some laxatives. They, they picked it up and brought it over. I'll take a look. Check out Metamucil at, the, at Rite Aid or CV, one of those, uh, you know, uh, pharmacy places. But it's over the counter. It's basically psyllium husk. And what the husk does is it, huh. it removes stuff, takes it out of the system. It's, it's good for us people over 70. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll yeah, Meta, Metamucil, M-U-C-I-L. Well, it's really great talking to you, John. I'm going to. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to take a short break right now uh, to give sort of a commercial. And while I do, I'd like you to be thinking about, if you will, what else you might want to say before we end the program. What do you want to share? And, and also, okay. what, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to open my email and I think I'll read the note I just sent. That would notes. be great because, you know, that was the other thing I was thinking. I hope you having a way of sharing these beautiful things that you're writing. Maybe your son or somebody in your family can make sure. Well, a friend of mine, a woman I know has a blog up and I sent her oh. some stuff. I sent her my journal originally. I write yes. every day. Good for you. And so it shows up on a blog sometimes. And I very likely am trying to produce a book. So Okay. You look for that email. I'll give the commercial. Okay. <laughs> perfect. So please, uh, 
uh, go to uh, our website. Go to mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Uh, check out the website. Check out the archives. We have had some fantastic people on this program. Uh, I wouldn't even know where to begin naming them. Um, I think if you're interested in the environment, I'd recommend Sylvia Earle, the world's foremost oceanographer, and Obi Kaufman, who's a modern-day John Muir. Uh, if you're interested in psychedelics, uh, we've done, I think, the longest series of psychedelics that's ever been done on air. We started way back in 2005. Uh, philosophy, uh, politics, there's a lot of fun stuff. And it's all free, open source. You can also subscribe, which we'd like you to do, because that'll help the program. And please also um, check out my books, uh, my Psychedelic Medicine, which is the first one, Psychedelic Wisdom, which just got published. Uh, three more coming out soon. I'll give you a teaser on one coming out in a few months called Freeing Sexuality. I know you're going to love it. Uh, back to John and uh, something he's going to read to us. Did you find it, John? Okay, I'm looking at my email. I just finished this little note to the nurse um, just before we got on. So here we go. Hello, Elise. Death is not necessarily neat. I am trying to handle this as best I can. My perspective, highly influenced from 11 years I spent working with Lama Drume Norbu, a Dzogchen master, has to do with the impermanent yet endless unfolding of karma. We enter the three-dimensional realm, which is basically an illusory state through a womb. Karmic patterns, which are resonating echoes vibrating in a realm beyond molecular, physical, biological form, cause the state of formation of the individual life that we become. How we handle such incarnations in endless succession sets the karmic echoes for the next round. From that perspective, we are, if, from that perspective, if we are sincere, in developing a compassionate response, we have the opportunity to enter deeper spiritual realms wherein we recognize that all suffering throughout a boundless universe is our personal suffering. I think for the fullness of individual consciousness, whether psychedelically induced or otherwise, requires this recognition of the universal suffering. Sure, it takes countless endless lifetimes. Why miss the greatest opportunity of a life at the moment of death to embrace this? There Thank you, you, John. Thank you. Last question, and then we'll uh, complete the interview. Do you have any advice to others who have received terminal diagnosis with regard to psychedelics? In regard to psychedelics. Specifically in regard um, to psychedelics. Right. As far as the cancer diagnosis, my first response is, please realize that you are fully responsible for your own life, your own being, your own spiritual situation, the unfolding, the living and the dying. You are responsible for your own life, not the medical establishment, not the politics of the hospital, not the doctor with his arrogance or his self-interest and his degree and his position. You are responsible. And if you are surrounded or can't surround yourself, support yourself with some loving people, psychedelic chemicals, spiritual catalysts that they are, have the opportunity to open you to wisdom that will make recognizing the approaching end of life or the approaching 10 years of dealing with the, the misery of your own disease more bearable and more insightful and more understandable. Thank you, John. And thank you for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Okay. Can, can I ask you, how can my friends see this? Um, we'll tell you about that. Um, 
It'll be on the archive of mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. You will personally be notified when it's going to be posted. And in addition, we go live uh, every Tuesday morning at nine o'clock, and you will get one of those nine o'clock spots. And when you're about to be on, uh, a newsletter will go out, which goes out to about 16,000 people talking about you and what you're going to be talking about. And the newsletter uh, tells people how to access your audio video interview. And you personally, because you've been a guest on the show, will be notified by my staff. You'll get plenty of notice so you can tell everybody you know uh, that you're on. And uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, thank you all, listeners, for being with us today on this edition of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You heard me say we're live 9 o'clock um, every Tuesday morning. It's Actually, it's not live since we pre-recorded. But it, it's scheduled at 9 o'clock, and then you can listen on the archives anytime you want. Uh, until next time that we're together, which I look forward to, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hi, Eva Cheska here again. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and we encourage you to share it with others. All of our programs are archived and are open source, which means that you can listen to them anytime, anywhere, anyplace through our website, free of charge. We also invite you to check out my dad's books, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca, Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Rewards of Psychedelic Substances, and Integral Psychedelic Therapy, The Non-Ordinary Art of Psycho-Spiritual Healing, co-edited. Stay tuned for a new episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics every week. And if you want advance notice of our upcoming guests, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Until next time, this is Eva Cheska DeAngelis wishing you good health. <laughs>